I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Fewer people are convinced by the story each day as they begin to see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. The time for allowing them to make us feel like strangers in our own country is over. We are Americans. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, February 1st, 2022, the 377th day of dystopia. Before we get started, I just want to thank everybody out there for continuing to share the show. The show is hitting the best numbers it's ever had in the last few weeks since returning from the holidays. And all of you are a big part in that. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for donating and supporting what I do. If you would like to do that, if you would like to support the show, ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator, ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. You can find the writing on Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. And you can find my social media on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator and follow the info stream t.me slash I'm your moderator on Telegram. So today's episode is about a bunch of the corruption news that's coming out of major political players and their progeny. But before we get into that, I want to briefly update on the whereabouts of Justin Trudeau. There were reports out yesterday that said he was potentially hiding out in America. He gave a speech yesterday from a house that people have kind of geolocated and found is in fact in Canada. But there are also reports that his plane was in Berlin, leaving Berlin, flying back across the Atlantic yesterday. And it's awfully weird for Justin Trudeau's plane to be somewhere Justin Trudeau is not. So who knows where Justin Trudeau is? We do know that one place he is not is at work in Ottawa facing the trucker convoy. Instead, he just simply ran from them and blamed it on COVID. Just like Rachel Maddow has ran away from being the lead shill at MSNBC for the Chinese Communist Party during the Beijing Olympics. I also want to hit a little update or kind of a flashback update to layer onto the New York Times story about the dark money flooding into the Uniparty that we went through yesterday. But first, I want to share this little piece from Lloyd Billingsley writing for American Greatness. It's called From 1984 to 2022. This was published yesterday. And the reason I want to go through it is because Orwell's 1984 is such a critical piece of understanding the landscape, the cultural landscape that we exist in right now in America and around the world. I revisited 1984 at the very beginning of the pandemic period, probably in, 
I don't know, May or June, maybe even April of 2020. And I listened to the audio book over the course of a few days. And I was like, this is incredible because all of this stuff is just provably and obviously happening in the real world. If you are awake enough, which means I guess awake at all, because it's that obvious, you should be able to see the parallel immediately. And one of the, one of the funniest things about a bunch of the Hollywood leftists I was dealing with at the time were that they were fans of Orwell and fans of 1984. They were familiar with the material and they nonetheless couldn't see any of it as it happened in real life before them because they viewed everything in terms of sides. And they have always just assumed that they were on the good side by virtue of their own personal goodness. And they knew that based on the zero applicable information that they actually possess. They are only convinced of their own goodness, which means that the side they have chosen must also exhibit their collective goodness with other very good people and very smart people like them. And then once they've determined that the entire side is correct, they get to determine that the other side is completely wrong and the other side is completely wrong in such a way that they are so evil that you cannot even hear their ideas or some of the evil might rub off on you. So this is Lloyd Billingsley from 1984 to 2022. The gap is actually decades wider because as readers in the USSR and the Soviet bloc understood, 1984 was all about 1948. And Orwell was on record that the book was anti-Stalin. The Stalinist conditions of 1948 are now going on big time in the United States of America. Under Ingsoc, English socialism, war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. As Winston Smith observes, only the thought police are efficient. The subjects of Oceania must not only follow party orthodoxy, but must show the requisite level of enthusiasm, lest the thought police arrest them for face crime or own life, living in any way at odds with the party orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orwell explains, orthodoxy is unconsciousness. Children had been systematically turned against their parents and taught to spy on them and report their deviations. This is a reference to Pavlik Morozov, who denounced his father to Soviet authorities. In Oceania, the family had become, in effect, an extension of the thought police. Children were ungovernable little savages with, quote, no tendency whatever to rebel against the discipline of the party. They harass Winston Smith, who has memories of those old-fashioned loyalties. His mother had possessed a kind of nobility, a kind of purity, simply because the standards that she obeyed were private ones. Her feelings were her own and could not be altered from outside. Smith recalls a time when, quote, there was still privacy, love, and friendship, and when the members of a family stood by one another without needing to know the reason. Smith now finds, quote, fear, hatred, and pain, but no dignity of emotion, no deep or complex sorrows. Big Brother supposedly watches over all, but goods are in short supply and the people must queue up for everything. As Smith knows, statistics were just as much a fantasy in their original version as in their rectified version. Under Ingsoc, things were as good as they could be, and since the party controlled the present, it also controlled the past. Centuries of capitalism were held to have produced nothing of value. 
One could not learn history from architecture any more than one could learn it from books. Streets, inscriptions, memorial stones, the names of streets, anything that might throw light on the past had been systematically altered. In other words, history has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. The appendix to 1984 quotes the entire U.S. Declaration of Independence. And as Orwell explains, quote, in Newspeak, the declaration could only be crime think, end quote. True to form, under English socialism, purges and vaporizations were a necessary part of the mechanics of government. Winston and his lover, Julia, pledged to fight the party, but are quickly uncovered, arrested and tortured. As party inquisitor O'Brien explains, the party seeks power entirely for its own sake. We are not interested in the good of others. We are interested solely in power, not wealth or luxury or long life or happiness, only pure power. As Winston Smith learns, power is not a means. It is an end. One does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard a revolution. One makes a revolution to establish the dictatorship. The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture. The object of power is power. Now do you begin to understand me? In 2022, embattled Americans are beginning to understand the parallels. America's liberty and prosperity have drawn immigrants from around the world. When liberty and prosperity were thriving as never before, Governor Andrew Cuomo countered that America was, quote, never that great. But for the political class, there was more to it. From the start, they contend America was nothing more than a bastion of racist oppression founded to preserve and expand slavery. Like the party's take on capitalism, America had never produced anything of value. So down came the statues, inscriptions, and anything that might throw light on the past. As in 1984, America's founding documents are pure crime think. Teachers unions now force feed this propaganda in the schools. And when parents object, the Department of Justice calls them domestic terrorists. The January 6th protesters are held without bail and without trial. Embattled Americans now face shortages of basic goods, surging energy prices and rampant inflation. Remember what O'Brien told Winston Smith in 1984. The party seeks power entirely for its own sake, he said. We are not interested in the good of others. We are interested solely in power. As embattled Americans understand, runaway government spending ramps up inflation. A ban on drilling and cancellation of pipelines increases the price of oil and gas. An open door for criminals, plus restrictions on law enforcement, increases crime. That constitutes evidence that the Biden junta is not interested in the good of others and pursues only power. O'Brien, who broke the news to Winston Smith, was a member of the inner party, and under Ingsoc, the party is always right. That brings up another parallel with 1984. In Conrad Black's phrase, Joe Biden is a, quote, waxworks effigy of a president, end quote, but also the face and voice of the inner party, those really calling the shots. That would be the composite character David Garrow described in Rising Star, the making of Barack Obama. Rip Van Winkle communist Bernie Sanders and the AOC squad. These leftists and their allies are the inner party of AMSOC, American socialism, now taking a toll on the people. Under AMSOC, the past is falsified. Statistics are meaningless and the party is always right. The Biden junta cares only about power. And in his January 19th press conference, Joe had that covered. As he told reporters, the 2022 elections could easily be illegitimate. 
As in 1984, the way things are unfolding now is the way it will be moving forward, and any change would be wrong. Now do you begin to understand? If you want a picture of the future, O'Brien told Winston Smith, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Imagine, too, the angry face of Joe Biden and the current disaster going on forever. From 1984 to 2022, from a free and prosperous republic to a dreary Stalinist Covidistan. All across America, the clocks are striking 13. When I revisited 1984 in that summer or spring of 2020, I had this strong feeling. I was amazed that Orwell could have predicted our current time so well. And that feeling was very temporary because I immediately realized that Orwell was describing something in history that may well take place again. And that is exactly what we have. And that is why I never shy away from making the comparisons to what's going on now in America and across the world to World War II Germany and to communist Russia, to communist China in the past. They are all direct parallels. This is a system of power that they have tried before. And they have failed before and they will fail again. But the key thing is that it has never been fully broken. This time we actually have a chance to do that because the entire world is waking up to this. We are able to communicate in a way that humanity has never been able to communicate before. And initially that had helped to enslave humanity. But I think we will find that that is what ultimately frees us. So speaking of the dark money Flowing into the Uniparty yesterday, I found this little piece of independent journalism from royalmagazine.net. It popped up in my Telegram feed today. This is from last year. The author is a man named Ken Ashley. The headline, Massive Dark Money Network Posing as News Reporters Exposed. Fake news lowers trust in mainstream media was the headline of a startling study recently released by Rutgers-led researchers. The researchers defined fake news as fabricated information that looks like news content, but lacks the editorial standards and practices of legitimate journalism. The net result is only 29% of Americans say they trust the current news sources for truthful information. However, are more sinister forces at work behind the market flood of fake news? Recently, what some consider akin to a criminal cabal of misinformation and psychological warfare operation, a political cover operation was exposed for actually being fake, fake news. This operation and one of its political operating units called the Arizona Mirror recently came to national prominence in light of the massive election audit taking place in Maricopa County, Arizona. This coincides with the world now understanding fake news is fabricated information. But the extra fake in this particular operation is not one of the participants are actually bona fide news reporters or journalists. This cabal with fake correspondent credentials generating fake news is actually a very sophisticated operation to launder misinformation and psychological warfare stories through what is seemingly to those in the public a legitimate news source. The Arizona Mirror sounds like a legitimate Arizona news source or newspaper, but in nature and operation, it is a cover story for a very sophisticated 20-city hit squad of hokum peddlers designed to assassinate the character of politicians, business leaders, free thinkers, and especially conservatives by publishing tripe. 
under the legitimate guise of both a 501c3 and a news organization, this cabal cobbles specious stories while it altogether avoids paying taxes. This cost a cabal disguising its Democratic Party demagoguery uses its press pass as a way to get into events as the press when in fact they are not the press. This cabal's charter is to push and impose extreme liberal views, which undermine American ethics, values, and laws onto unsuspecting citizens and other legitimate news sources. The dark money comes from a well-established uber-elite facade of democracy called the Hopewell Fund. In turn, the Hopewell Fund is part of the massive left-of-center dark money entity called Arabella Advisors. In turn, Arabella owns, funds, and operates the state's newsroom, parent entity of Arizona Mirror. State's newsroom employs more than 78 factitious full-time editors and imitative reporters in 20 states across the country. Hopewell donates to far left-of-center organizations, including abortion providers, and manages a number of of left-of-center single-issue advocacy groups, including the Economic Security Project and pro-Obamacare Get America Covered. In addition to the Arizona Mirror, Hopewell reports trade names of other news entities it controls as the Florida Phoenix, Nevada Current, and Virginia Mercury. In short, the funding money comes directly from George Soros, the organizations he both founded and supports, such as Open Society's Foundation, W.K. Kellogg Foundation, and the Democracy Alliance. Dark money earmarked for dubious deeds on American democracy. As part of the sham guise of being a legitimate 501c3, Even though it is illegal to do what they do politically and remain a 501c3, this operation takes aim at anything conservative. Many have called for these entities to be investigated by the Department of Justice. The only thing truthful about being a charity is the fact that Arizona Mirror and the other 19 cities who have these covert political operations posing as reporters and journalists is that they are the charity beneficiaries drafting from a $100 million annual grant designed to oppose anything decidedly American. And we can leave the article aside at this point. So the Arizona Mirror was the outlet that was churning out fake news about the Arizona audit all last summer. And Rachel Maddow, used to take their reports and then read them on her show, which not only means that their non-factual reporting is going out onto MSNBC's air to be consumed by Rachel Maddow's audience of child brains. It also makes it seem like the Arizona mirror is more legitimate than they are by virtue of a national television host reading their reporting on air. And of course, Rachel Maddow was one of the cable news hosts who pretended that the Arizona audit, when they finally gave their preliminary report last year, had actually found that Joe Biden won by more than they had initially reported. That was what they went with as their headlines. The Arizona audit found far more illegal and uncertifiable votes than the margin of victory. And it was not close. We're talking about a margin of victory. I think it was nine or 10,000. And they found hundreds of thousands of votes for which there was no chain of custody, no record votes, deleted records, deleted. They found all sorts of stuff. The only critical takeaway from that audit should be that no one should have felt confident in certifying 
the 2020 election in Arizona, but they played it completely differently. They did hand counts, counting all of the ballots, whether real or fraudulent. And in that hand count, they found those extra votes for Biden. But of course, there were massive problems with chain of custody. The ballots appeared on all kinds of different paper, many of those kinds unofficial and so not legal. But the Arizona Mirror reported what they wanted to report. And then Rachel Maddow reported that the Arizona Mirror reported it. And that gives a host like Rachel Maddow, who has no integrity, the ability to rely on a secondary source, even if the source is completely worthless, as the Arizona Mirror is. And so now you can see where that funding comes from and what some of that dark money goes to. This is only a propaganda effort and an example of how they launder information into the mainstream, completely fake news from the start. So last week in Breitbart, one of the stories that they published about the Peter Schweitzer book was something that I didn't have a chance to get to, but wanted to. I'm going to do it today because there's more of this stuff coming out. This is from last week in Breitbart. Bombshell Biden family scored $31 million from deals with individuals with direct ties to the highest levels of Chinese intelligence. And some of this will be stuff we've gone through before. The Biden family scored $31 million from five deals in China, all with individuals with direct ties to the Chinese spy apparatus, according to a new bombshell book. Multiple financiers with direct ties to Chinese intelligence partnered with Hunter Biden during and after his father's time as vice president, including the former head of the Ministry of State Security and the head of foreign intelligence recruitment. And some of those relationships remain intact, according to Red Handed, how American elites get rich by helping China win. By Breitbart News senior contributor Peter Schweitzer. Schweitzer explains that Beijing saw a financial relationship with the Bidens as an opening for elite capture, which allowed Hunter Biden to secure meetings and score major deals with people in the highest levels of Chinese financial institutions and the Chinese Communist Party. And in return, they would be able to leverage the Bidens power for their interests. One of the central early players in the Biden's Chinese deals is a tycoon by the name of Che Fang, or the super chairman, as Hunter and his partners referred to him. Che, the son of a PLA soldier, has been described in Western media as a shadowy and discreet investor whose father-in-law was the governor of the People's Bank of China and whose business partner was the vice minister of state security, a man by the name of Ma Jian. Schweitzer writes that Ma was reportedly the director of the ministry's number eight bureau overseeing North American operations targeting foreigners with its counterintelligence apparatus. The hazard of a Chinese businessman with close ties to the top ranks of Beijing's spy agency conducting financial transactions with the son of the U.S. vice president cannot be overstated. How this did not set off national security or ethics alarm bells in Washington is a wonder in itself, Schweitzer writes. The super chairman was meant to fuse Chinese financial might to those with access to the highest levels of power in the Western world, which led to the creation of Bohai Harvest, funded by China's biggest government-backed financial institutions, with the Biden Scion and his American partners. Another partner the Bidens were introduced to via the super chairman is Zhao Keijun, a.k.a. Henry Zhao, who formed Harvest Fund Management. Zhao was the chairman and Chinese Communist Party general secretary at the firm. Zhao had another company called Harvest Global Investments, which he co-founded with Jia Li King, the 
daughter-in-law of a member of the Politburo Standing Committee at the time. Jia Chun Wang, Li King's father, is the former Minister of State Security in charge of secret service, espionage, and domestic and overseas intelligence work. That firm, Harvest Global Investments, wired $5 million to another Hunter Biden business called Burnham. There is no one more powerful in the world of Chinese intelligence, Schweitzer writes. The seductive and lucrative deal that Hunter was now putting into place, creating BHR, involved two financiers with ties to the highest levels of Chinese intelligence, a billion-dollar private equity deal that we first exposed in Secret Empires. What we now know are the roles played by the spy-connected super chairman and Zhao. According to Michael Lin, another Chinese partner, Hunter's role in the venture was pretty straightforward. Open as many doors as possible in the Western world for this very famous Bohai professional team. There was also the expectation that Hunter and his partners would join some of the meetings in Hong Kong and China they arrange when communicating with possible financial partners, Schweitzer adds. The super chairman and Ma Jian were eventually arrested and charged with money laundering and bribery, taking them out of the deal with Biden. However, the connections Hunter had made through them were already established, and Zhao would serve as a conduit for more deals ahead. Eventually, BHR began buying or investing in companies in China and the U.S. with strategic importance. For instance, Schweitzer reports that one of their early investments was in China General Nuclear Power Corporation, with Hunter's firm as an anchor investor. The FBI ultimately busted CGN as a conduit for nuclear espionage in the West, with CGN and a CGN engineer being charged by the Obama DOJ with stealing nuclear secrets in 2016. BHR also bought an American company called Hennig's Automotive, which created anti-vibration technologies with military and civilian applications. BHR partnered with the Aviation Industry Corporation of China to close the deal, one of China's largest military contractors and a major culprit in the theft of U.S. defense technology. Okay, just to take a second, what we're talking about right now is Hunter Biden through his father's connections, facilitating the theft of American military trade secrets to the Chinese Communist Party. Just want to be clear about that. Between the BHR deal and the $5 million wired by Harvest, Hunter received some $25 million from Chinese businessmen tied to the highest levels of Chinese intelligence, Schweitzer writes. Eventually, Hunter would be introduced to CEFC China Energy Chairman Yi Jianming, with who he would develop a close working relationship and would speak, according to Hunter, on a regular basis. Hunter served as Yi's personal counsel and also worked with him to broaden CEFC as a global energy company with holdings in Oman, Romania, Colombia, and Luxembourg. However, Yi also had close Chinese intelligence ties. CEFC was housed in a complex with Shanghai's French concession section, an area primarily controlled by Chinese military. One of Yi's early business partners was the granddaughter of one of the founders of China's military, Marshal Yi Jianying. The corporate logo of the company Hunter Biden was now advising and which would pay him millions features a star. According to company records on its English website, it represents civil rights. However, on the company's Chinese language site, the star signifies that this organization will play a strong and powerful role for the interests of the Chinese state and nation, Schweitzer writes. CEFC was also a direct beneficiary to the Chinese military as the company played a central role in China's Belt and Road Initiative and was an oil supplier to the People's Liberation Army. 
Hunter would set up two entities with Yi, Hudson West 4 and Sinohawk, to allow the chairman to invest in U.S. infrastructure. In total, the Biden family received some $6 million from Yi's companies. Oh, man, that's so great that China wants to invest in U.S. infrastructure since we just spent, what, $2 trillion, only 9% of it on infrastructure in the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Thank goodness China's there to help Joe out with that. It was in a deal with CAFC that Hunter reportedly discussed holding 10% for the big guy. In working with Yi, Hunter Biden also built a relationship with the chairman's emissary, Gongwen Dong, with whom he had plans to share an office, along with Joe and Jill Biden, following the then VP's departure from office. But Dong was not only an emissary for the chairman. At the time, he was also the chief financial officer for Beijing-based Radiance Property Holdings, controlled by Lam Ting Kyung a businessman with deep connections to United Front groups linked to Chinese intelligence and a member of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, a central component of the CCP's United Front efforts, which often serve as covers for Chinese intelligence operations. In sum, each deal the Biden secured in China was via a businessman with deep ties at the highest levels of Chinese intelligence. And in each case, there appears to be little discernible business or professional service that was rendered in return for the money, Schweitzer writes. There is evidence previously reported by the New York Post that the Biden family business was footing bills for Joe Biden's expenses. As Schweitzer writes in the book, Hunter Biden and Joe Biden blurred their funds in the infamous laptop from hell. A 2019 text was recovered from Hunter Biden to his daughter, Naomi, where he writes, I hope you all can do what I did and pay for everything for this entire family for 30 years. It's really hard, but don't worry. Unlike pop, I won't make you give me half your salary. There's also an email to Hunter on the hard drive from 2010 subject line JRB bills, where bills are detailed for contractors hired for upkeep on the senior Biden's Wilmington house for Hunter to pay the bills that June included $2,600 to contractor Earl Downing for a stone retaining wall at Joe's Wilmington estate, 1,475 to painter Ronald Peacock to paint the back wall and columns of the house and 1,239 to builder Mike Christopher for repairs to the air conditioning at the cottage of Joe's late mother, Jean Mom Mom Biden, which was on his property and which he would later rent to the Secret Service for $2,200 a month, the Post reported. Peter Schweitzer also reveals in Red Handed that Rosemont Seneca, another one of Hunter's many entities, set up separate phone lines to reach then VP Biden and paid for that monthly bill, a move Schweitzer calls not legal. Beijing should certainly be happy with the overall posture of the Biden administration. The talk is tougher, but the main tenets of the foreign policy that Beijing wants Washington to pursue are secure. No radical reduction in the transfer of technology or capital from America to Beijing. No fundamental challenges to the Chinese regime and mild criticism over human rights accompanied by excuses for their conduct. Schweitzer writes. So that's just some background. And I know that you've probably heard some of that before, but the sum total there, $31 million compiled that way is relatively new. And I want to get people's minds back into this story because I think that we're going to see a continuation of little drops, little hints coming out of the Marco Polo research group in anticipation of the full report coming out 
hopefully in the next few weeks. But we'll just have to be patient on that until we know what the timeline is. We do, however, have the first one of those. And this is reported in Breitbart from Sunday. U.S. Attorney Doc, IRS issued grand jury subpoena to J.P. Morgan for Hunter and James Biden's bank records in probe into Biden family's China connections. A criminal IRS investigation into Hunter Biden, President Biden's son, appears to have convened a grand jury as far back as May 2019. A confidential subpoena served to J.P. Morgan Chase Bank reveals. The subpoena also seeks bank records of James Biden, the president's brother, which appears to be the first time another Biden family member has surfaced in connection with the investigation. The document obtained by Breitbart News specifically demands information on related transactions between J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, which the document calls Correspondent Bank, and the Bank of China, which the document calls the Originating or Beneficiary Bank. The document appears to show that as President Biden was launching his campaign that spring. Federal prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware had impaneled a grand jury and were demanding the production of bank records relating to Hunter and James Biden, as well as two of their business associates, Devin Archer and Eric Schwerin. While it has been reported that subpoenas were issued in a Hunter Biden criminal probe from federal investigators, the level of detail this document contains has never been reported. The document, dated May 20th, 2019, is a subpoena compelling J.P. Morgan Chase Bank to appear in U.S. District Court in Delaware. You are commanded to appear in this United States District Court at the time, date, and place to testify before the court's grand jury. The document, a subpoena to J.P. Morgan Chase Bank's subpoena processing office based in Indianapolis, says, When you arrive, you must remain at the court until a judge or court officer allows you to leave. The document lists a courtroom in the J. Caleb Boggs Federal Building in Wilmington, Delaware, as the location that J.P. Morgan Chase Bank officials were compelled to appear and commands a response by June 25, 2019. You must also bring with you the following documents, electronically stored information or objects. The document continues, then pointing to Attachment A, which lists out exactly what the megabank needed to provide to the court. Attachment A lists out the following instruction to the bank's compliance officials. Produce the following, all records, documents, and accounts pertaining to all financial and banking transactions with the following known names and or accounts. However, when conducting your search, please do not limit your scope to only the known accounts listed below. Unknown, associated, signatory, or closed accounts are also requested. The specific individuals named by the subpoena are Robert Hunter Biden, James Biden, Devin Archer, and Eric Schwerin. Business names listed out by the subpoena are Owasco, Scaniatelis, don't know if that's how you say that, RSP Holdings, RSP Investments, RSTP2 Alpha, RSTP2 Bravo, Seneca Global Advisors, Acaba International, Rosemont Seneca, Burisma Holdings, Bohai Harvest, RST Shanghai Equity, Robinson Walker, Hudson West, European Energy, and Infras Group Limited. Bladen Enterprises Limited. The document specifically states multiple times, do not disclose the existence of this subpoena to the individual or any third party. An accompanying letter, David C. Weiss, the U.S. attorney for the District of Delaware to J.P. Morgan Chase Bank officials specifies that federal law, quote, 
makes it a federal crime for an officer of a financial institution to notify either directly or indirectly a the customer of that financial institution whose records are sought by a grand jury subpoena or b any other person named in that subpoena about the existence or contents of that subpoena or information that has been furnished to the grand jury in response to that subpoena. Hunter Biden revealed in a statement in December 2020, just following the presidential election, that he was under federal investigation for possible tax fraud. At the time, it was reported by Fox News and CNN that the investigation began in 2018 and was looking into whether Hunter and his business associates violated tax and money laundering laws. Reporting by CNN at the time said the probe was focused on Hunter's engagements in China and other countries and transactions with, quote, people who posed counterintelligence concerns. The probe had been put on hold as the presidential race ramped up, but it had allegedly resumed after all ballots were cast. Weiss paused the investigation, deciding not to seek search warrants or issue grand jury subpoenas to not, quote, alert the public to the existence of the case in the middle of a presidential election, end quote, according to a report by Politico in July 2021. What a sweet favor. The federal investigation into Hunter's tax affairs was reported by Fox News to have been moving forward in March 2021 and that the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware had not heard from the White House at that time. And I just want to pause for a second because, you know, part of the narrative, the public narrative about investigations like this being kept private, being withheld from the public so as not to affect the outcome of a presidential race, that is a completely bullshit excuse. Okay, this is all premised on the fact that the James Comey investigation and their announcements into the investigation regarding Hillary's private email server, where she conducted all the business that she didn't want the government to know about while she was a government official, which is illegal. But everybody got upset. They were like, oh, well, James Comey affected the outcome of the election by releasing this information. Well, here's the thing. If the Democrat Communist Party did not always choose to put up candidates who were completely corrupted and doing extraordinarily illegal things, this wouldn't be a problem. We are supposed to be able to know in advance of an election if the person running for office and his family are involved in selling their political offices to our foreign adversaries and their intelligence services for millions upon millions of dollars. Those are the sorts of things voters might like to know. But our Department of Justice, our law enforcement agencies, they decide to keep them quiet. And when it comes up in the media, well, the media can just say, well, yeah, but there's that investigation's been paused and we don't know the outcome. So we really better just pretend that everybody is completely innocent. And this is one of the ways that we continue to end up with corrupt criminals pretending to hold office after stealing elections like Joe Biden. I remember a survey was taken in the months right after the November 2020 election and one out of six Biden voters said they would not have voted for Joe Biden if they knew about the laptop and the Biden's corrupt dealings. But instead, big tech, our media companies and 50 former intelligence officials all decided to plant and then run with the story that the laptop from hell was somehow Russian disinformation. And of course, it wasn't. It is 100 percent real. It was always real. 
big tech and media tried to hide it to influence the election, partially for their own benefit, partially because they wanted a political outcome and partially for the benefit of those same foreign adversaries. And the 50 former intelligence officials just flat out lied about a crucial issue of American national security. They lied to the American public on purpose. But yet they're still allowed to appear on cable news each night. And just the number of them, 50 former intelligence officials leads people to think, oh, well, they couldn't all be wrong. They couldn't all be lying. Yeah, they absolutely can all be lying. That is 100% something that could actually happen. Sorry, the news didn't tell you. Hunter Biden revealed in an interview with CBS in April 2021 that his lawyers were not working on a plea deal in the case. I am absolutely certain that what we're doing is being completely cooperative with whoever is asking from any authority whatsoever, he said at the time. And that's one of those important times to remember that Hunter Biden is the smartest man Joe Biden has ever met. The document was first obtained by former White House official Garrett Ziegler, who is a former associate director in Peter Navarro's Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy in the White House, serving from 2019 through 2021 who provided it to Breitbart News. Following his time at the White House, Ziegler established Marco Polo, a nonprofit research group, quote, exposing corruption and blackmail, and has been conducting a forensic review combined with extra independent investigation into Hunter Biden's laptop. This wide-ranging grand jury subpoena suggests that Joe's son and brother received transfers from an account with the Bank of China. The question that remains is why Bill Barr directly intervened to ensure that the U.S. attorney in Delaware's investigation into Joe's family was kept from the public for over 17 months until after the election, as previous reporting has confirmed. David Weiss and Bill Barr, or someone with a conscience inside the Justice Department, should answer that question for the American people, Ziegler said in a statement to Breitbart News. The aforementioned Politico story suggests Weiss took steps to keep his investigation from going public in 2019 because he did not want it coming out in the middle of an election. And a subsequent Wall Street Journal piece in December 2020 suggests that Barr did the same. It is unclear if J.P. Morgan Chase Bank cooperated with this subpoena. It is worth noting that the bank's outside counsel firm, Paul Weiss, Rifkind, Wharton and Garrison, announced it hired former U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch shortly after receiving this subpoena. It is unclear if Lynch had any involvement on this specific matter. However, she has worked on similar matters involving J.P. Morgan Chase Bank compliance. It is also unclear where this criminal investigation stands. And like I said, first drop coming out of Marco Polo, there is going to be a whole lot. And once the report comes out, or perhaps even a bit before the report comes out, Garrett Ziegler himself should be back on this show, and hopefully we'll get some extended time over the next few weeks to talk about what is in this report and what it all means. Now let's go to just the news. And just a little note, my friend Amanda Head and John Solomon have just started their new show on just the news Last night, it immediately follows the afternoon war room. So I think it's 6 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Central. You can figure out the rest of the time zones. But 
Give that a look, americasvoice.news, and I'm going to have Amanda on as a guest in the near future to talk about the new show and the state of things. So this is from justthenews.com, uh, John Solomon, Biden boomerang, newly released state memos undercut Democrats' Ukraine impeachment story. Just months before Joe Biden forced his firing, Ukraine's chief prosecutor was told by U.S. State Department officials that they were impressed with his anti-corruption plan and fully supportive of his work, according to newly released memos that cast doubt on a key Democrat impeachment narrative. During former President Donald Trump's first impeachment trial two years ago, House Democrats alleged that Ukrainian Prosecutor General Viktor Shokin was fired in March 2016 because state officials were widely displeased with his anti-corruption efforts and not because Shokin's office was investigating the Ukrainian gas firm that had given then-Vice President Biden's son, Hunter, a lucrative job. But the memos obtained by Just the News and the Southeastern Legal Foundation under a Freedom of Information Act request show senior State Department officials, including then-Secretary of State John Kerry, were sending the opposite message to Shokin the summer before his firing. We have been impressed with the ambitious reform and anti-corruption agenda of your government. Then-Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs Victoria Newland personally wrote Shokin in an official letter dated June 9th, 2015, that was delivered to the prosecutor two days later by then-U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey Pyatt. Newland, now President Biden's Undersecretary of State, wrote that Secretary Kerry asked me to reply on his behalf to let Shokin know he enjoyed the full support of the United States as he set out to fight endemic corruption in the former Soviet Republic. The ongoing reform of your office, law enforcement, and the judiciary will enable you to investigate and prosecute corruption and other crimes in an effective, fair, and transparent manner, Newland added. The United States fully supports your government's efforts to fight corruption and other crimes in an effective, fair, and transparent manner. This letter stands out, according to Republican congressional investigators and Trump's former impeachment defense lawyers, because it was sent just six months before Joe Biden began his pressure campaign to oust Shokin in December 2015 and appears to conflict with testimony given to Congress. Got that? Victoria Newland testified in impeachment hoax number one. They also told Just the News they have no record the memo was produced to Trump's impeachment defense team or to a Senate investigation that concluded the Biden's business dealings in Ukraine created a conflict of interest that undercut U.S. anti-corruption efforts. We did not receive this. We should have received it. President Trump's defense attorneys also should have received it. Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, who led a detailed investigation in 2020 into Hunter and Joe Biden's business affairs, told Just the News television show on Real America's Voice on Monday night. This just underscores how congressional oversight has really diminished over the years, mainly because we don't have enforcement powers, he added. Administration officials realize this. The bureaucrats realize this. So they just thumb their nose at congressional investigators that they run off the clock. Newland's memo was sent about six months before the New York Times in December 2015 reported that Hunter Biden's role as a board member and consultant to Burisma Holdings undermined U.S. anti-corruption efforts in Ukraine because Shokin's office had an ongoing corruption investigation into that Ukraine gas company. 
The story broke just before Vice President Biden visited Ukraine as President Barack Obama's handpicked designee to oversee U.S.-Ukraine policy. And it caused consternation both for the Biden family and State Department officials, according to emails obtained by Just the News last year. And isn't it interesting that Obama would send Biden as like his special envoy to Ukraine? That's not the vice president's natural role, right? And there are certainly countries around the world whose relationships to the United States are more important than Ukraine's. Was Joe Biden an emissary to those places as well? Well, no, he wasn't. Joe Biden was tasked with dealing with Ukraine, which is one of the locations of the greatest Biden family corruption, except it's not only the Biden family. It's the Obama family and the Clinton family and the Kerry family and plenty of other corrupt Democrat Communist Party families. And when I say that Joe Biden was potentially being set up as a fall guy, these are the sorts of stories that make me think that is correct. Because if you're Obama or Clinton or anybody like that, and you want to attach a face to the Ukraine corruption problem, what better face than Joe Biden? And of course, now he's attaching his own face to Ukraine once again. Or perhaps the same people are attaching Joe Biden's face to Ukraine once again. Aides to both Hunter Biden and the State Department each prepared talking points to counter the Times article. That same month, according to U.S. and Ukraine officials, Joe Biden began a pressure campaign to remove Shokin as chief prosecutor. And of course, I played the video last week, the audio, I guess, because this is audio of Joe Biden bragging about getting this very prosecutor fired. The then vice president eventually succeeded in getting Shokin fired in March 2016 after the then vice president personally threatened Ukraine's then president, Petro Poroshenko, he would withhold one billion dollars in U.S. loan guarantees if the prosecutor wasn't removed. A series of columns by this reporter in The Hill newspaper in spring 2019, and Solomon is talking about himself there, he used to work at The Hill, exposed Biden's threat and revealed some U.S. officials feared it had created the appearance of a conflict of interest. Trump subsequently asked Ukraine's new president, Volodymyr Zelensky, in summer 2019 to investigate whether anything untoward occurred in Shokin's firing. And we can see clearly that it did. Democrats subsequently launched impeachment proceedings against Trump, arguing his request to Zelensky was an abuse of power because it targeted Biden, a potential 2020 election opponent. Trump defended the request as perfectly normal. During the House impeachment proceedings in fall 2019 and the Senate trial in January 2020 that led to Trump's acquittal, House Democrats repeatedly argued Trump had no basis to request an investigation and that Biden's effort to fire Shokin was legitimate because U.S. officials and the whole of U.S. government believed Shokin was either corrupt or ineffective fighting corruption. His reputation is one of a prosecutor general who was protecting certain interests rather than prosecuting them. Former state official Kurt Volker told impeachment prosecutors during his testimony when asked about Shokin. Newland, in 2020 testimony to the Senate, claimed she and other state officials were frustrated by summer 2015 that Shokin wasn't doing enough to fight corruption, making no mention of her June 2015 missive that actually praised Shokin. So the initial expectation when we began talking about the third loan guarantee, which I believe was in the summer of 2015, was that Prosecutor General Shokin make more progress than we had seen to clean up corruption inside the Prosecutor General's office itself. She testified. 
By December 2015, when Biden was heading to Ukraine for his visit, U.S. officials who were part of an interagency task force had decided Shokin must go, Newland testified. So by the time we get to December 2015, we've concluded that the PGO is not going to get cleaned up under Shokin and that there needs to be and to encourage Poroshenko to demonstrate his commitment by replacing Shokin, she explained. Newland's testimony of widespread frustration with Shokin is undercut by another State Department document obtained by Just the News. It shows that in October 2015, a U.S. multi-agency task force on Ukraine had concluded Ukraine had made good progress in fighting corruption and deserved the loan guarantee. This is a quote from that email. The IPC concluded that Ukraine has made sufficient progress on its reform agenda to justify a third guarantee and Ukraine has an economic need for the guarantee and it is in our strategic interest to provide one. As such, the IPC recommends moving forward with a third loan guarantee for Ukraine in the near term. That is from October 1st, 2015. State officials have repeatedly declined to comment on multiple occasions dating to 2020 about Newland's memo or explain why state officials had praised Shokin shortly before seeking his dismissal. Thanks for reaching out. The department's press office responded to just the news on one occasion. However, we will decline comment. Senator Johnson said the Newland letter and the task force email call into question the testimony that State Department witnesses gave during impeachment and the subsequent Senate investigation Johnson conducted. I know we didn't get a straight story. I knew that at the time, he said in an interview, but we couldn't prove it. I often got criticized. Well, why don't you bring these people in before your committee and put them under oath and start asking them questions? What do you do when you don't have the documents? You don't even know what questions to ask. And as they say, you know, they drag their feet. We didn't get the documents, obviously. Defense lawyers for Trump also raised concerns Monday that they weren't told about the Newland memo before his trial, saying it should have been produced as exculpatory material under the legal doctrine known as the Brady Rule. Withholding exculpatory material during an impeachment trial violates the spirit, if not the letter, of the Brady decision, said famed Harvard University law professor Alan Dershowitz, who was a defense team member for Trump's first impeachment. It also denies the American people the right to evaluate all the evidence. Newland's letter to Shokin supports part of the story Shokin told to a court and in a series of interviews in 2019 and 2020. Shokin told Solomon in 2019 and 2020 that State Department officials gave no inkling to him that he was doing a bad job and, in fact, praised him in the summer of 2015. He said he suddenly was whipsawed in September 2015 when Pyatt, the U.S. ambassador, gave a speech in Odessa criticizing his office for not pursuing the corruption case against Burisma owner Mikola Zlochevsky. Shokin said his team was, in fact, investigating Burisma at the time and took several steps publicly to demonstrate that, including fighting an effort by Zlochevsky to unfreeze assets that had been seized by Ukrainian officials. He said U.S. officials began pressuring his boss, Poroshenko, to fire the prosecutor after the New York Times story surfaced about Hunter Biden in December of 2015. Shokin said U.S. officials never offered any proof to Poroshenko that he committed any wrongdoing. So Poroshenko was in good standing with all of these people until the New York Times report came out, which presented a problem for Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and Burisma. And then all of a sudden, Poroshenko is the problem. In a court declaration filed in 2019 in an unrelated case involving the oligarch Dmitry Firtash, Shogun declared he believed he was fired for pursuing Burisma because it angered the Biden family. 
The truth is that I was forced out because I was leading a wide ranging corruption probe into Burisma Holdings, a natural gas firm active in Ukraine. And Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, was a member of the board of directors, Shokin said in an affidavit. On several occasions, President Poroshenko asked me to have a look at the case against Burisma and consider the possibility of winding down the investigative actions in respect of this company, but I refused to close this investigation, Shokin added. State officials and the Bidens have repeatedly denied Shokin's firing had anything to do with Burisma, but they offered only vague explanations for what specifically justified such action. Newland testified officials were concerned more corruption cases weren't being brought and that civil society activists in Ukraine were upset charges weren't filed against government officials who had killed protesters during the Maidan revolution of 2014. She also mentioned concerns that a regional prosecutor in Shokin's office had been found with diamonds at his home, saying the episode involved, quote, obvious corruption somewhere down the line, end quote, though no evidence ever emerged that Shokin himself was involved. But when asked who came up with the idea to fire Shokin and tie his termination to the loan guarantee, the official who oversaw Ukraine policy could not give a specific answer. Frankly, I don't remember. Newland testified. Likewise, the man who delivered the Newland note of praise to Shokin on June 11th, 2015, Ambassador Pyatt, made no mention of the memo in his 2020 Senate testimony and suggested the decision to seek Shokin's firing was driven by a, quote, layered process involving an interagency task force. I don't actually recall the exact date or even the exact month, Pyatt explained. What I can tell you is that there was a gradual evolution in the thinking of the interagency community about these issues. But Pyatt did offer one tantalizing observation, saying for a period of time, U.S. officials did not intend to fire Shokin. What I will tell you is at the beginning, it was not our expectation that Shokin's removal would be necessary to achieve our policy goals, he said. Whatever the case, the compact story of Shokin's firing that House Democrats offered at Trump's impeachment trial has gotten more complicated with the belated revelation that U.S. officials were sending praise to Shokin and offering their assistance shortly before Joe Biden intervened. The challenges you face are difficult, but not insurmountable, Newland wrote in her June 2015 letter. You have an historic opportunity to address the injustices of the past by vigorously investigating and prosecuting corruption cases and recovering assets stolen from the Ukrainian people. Just a few months later, that historic opportunity, which included an ongoing probe of Burisma, where Hunter Biden was working, was stripped from Shokin's hands under pressure from Joe Biden. So what we have here is the failure to produce evidence in impeachment hoax number one. That is bad enough, and that is horrible on its face. Impeaching a president over a phone call that was intentionally mistranscribed by Adam Schiff. He basically made up his own transcript of the call before the real transcript came out. Then Newland and Pyatt testified falsely in that trial. But it's possible that what we see here might be even worse. Sometimes they will launch investigations to tie up certain issues and certain records and certain information. It's possible that they wanted the investigation launched at the beginning so that a it could look like something was being done to root out corruption when in actuality it wasn't, but also so they could get all of the information that might be incriminating to Joe Biden and tie it up in a process. They could know exactly what was out there to be found without any accountability in the future. 
so that they could control the information, know what they're able to say and control the narrative after that. And I wanted to get to this piece from DC Uncovered on Alexander Vindman. It's called Where is Vindman When We Need Him? Biden's Perfect Call Part Two. And I suggest you go take a look at that. I may be able to get to it tomorrow. But before I go today, I want to follow up on a story that the Daily Mail did a couple weeks ago that I covered on the podcast about Nancy Pelosi's son, Paul, and his corrupt business dealings. Exclusive smoking gun documents tie Nancy Pelosi's son to fraud and bribery scheme to remove permit violations against squalid San Francisco flophouse owned by his ex-girlfriend and probed by the FBI. Nancy Pelosi's son listed himself as the owner of a flop house tied to a fraud and bribery scheme prosecuted by the FBI in documents newly unearthed by DailyMail.com. In the documents, Paul Pelosi signed statements that he was the property owner, the party legally and financially responsible for this proposed construction activity, and agreed to abide by all applicable laws and requirements that govern owner-builders as well as employers. And they even show Pelosi Jr., 53, applying for one of the very same permits that building inspector Bernie Curran and permits expediter Rodrigo Santos have been indicted for. The Department of Building Inspection form, signed by Pelosi Jr. and dated December 7th, 2017, is a smoking gun that evidences the House Speaker's son's close links to the high-profile corruption criminal case. Curran and Santos are due in federal court in San Francisco this week. Prosecutors claim Santos arranged for his clients to donate thousands of dollars to Curran's favorite nonprofit, a rugby club, in exchange for him turning a blind eye to violations and which would deny their buildings city permits. One such person, identified only as Client 9 in charging documents, wrote a $1,500 check to the club to help remove violations from the squalid residential hotel on Utah Street. Last week, DailyMail.com exclusively revealed that Pelosi Jr. was interviewed by feds in San Francisco over the hotel, which was owned by his former girlfriend, Karina Apple Fang. There was already some suggestion that he could be the mysterious Client 9. The discovery of the new documents heightened that speculation. Text messages obtained by the feds allegedly show Santos and Client 9 brazenly discussing a bribe to Karan's favorite charity to help grease the permit process. I will forward the address to Karan. He will abate it, Santos, 63, allegedly wrote to his client in September 2017. Please drop off a check payable to Golden Gate Youth Rugby Association for $1,000, Bernie's nonprofit. With pleasure, Client 9 replied, and later sent Santos a picture of a $1,500 check with the message, made the donation, and it is being sent today. The check was never deposited by the club, and prosecutors have not accused it of any wrongdoing. It is unclear why Client 9 sent $1,500 rather than the suggested $1,000. The charging documents describe Client 9 as an individual working on behalf of the owners of the property located on the 1300 block of Utah Street. There's one permit in the DBI system at that address signed off by Curran on December 7th, 2017, and the application number matches the number Pelosi Jr. wrote on his smoking gun documents obtained by DailyMail.com dated that same day. The documents are the latest in a growing pile of evidence suggesting the speaker's son is Client 9. 
Curran, 61, told DailyMail.com that Santos introduced him to Paul Pelosi in the Department of Building Inspection offices, telling Curran that Pelosi Jr. was a friend with whom he went jogging. An anonymous building inspector claimed in an interview with San Francisco news site Mission Local that in 2018, Pelosi Jr. met with him several times and was trying to get rid of notices of violation on the property at 1312 through 1314 Utah Street. Pelosi Jr.'s ex-girlfriend, Nicole Bullock, 46, told DailyMail.com that the FBI's interest in his involvement in the troubled Utah Street property began in 2017 and that he was interviewed three times. Pelosi Jr.'s business associate, Naveen Singha, who acted as a consultant for him on the sale of 1312 Utah Street, also said he was interviewed by federal agents about the speaker's son around May of 2019. And the former owner of the property, Karina Fang, said she was interviewed by the same agents over several months about 1312 Utah Street and Paul Pelosi Jr.'s involvement. Emails and subpoenas for records back up their claims. Earlier this month, a Daily Mail investigation revealed Pelosi Jr., 53, has been linked to five previous federal probes. This ongoing criminal case is the sixth. As well as tying Pelosi Jr. to an alleged criminal scheme, the December 2017 DBI form also raises serious questions over how he came to own or own a share of the multi-million dollar building. Fang, who was previously in a romantic relationship with Pelosi Jr., sued him in 2019, claiming he conspired with a now convicted lawyer and fraudulent realtor to steal the property from her. Pelosi Jr. and the other defendants denied the claims. Fang's case was dismissed in 2020 on technical grounds, and she has not refiled. Pelosi Jr. was recorded as the listing agent on a 2015 contract in which Fang sold the property for $4 million, though she claimed her signature on it was forged. He was also listed as chief financial officer of Fang RE Incorporated, Fang's company which held the flop house in 2015. In an August 2016 email to Fang, Pelosi Jr. claimed that he owned 20% of Fang RE. But when Mission Local asked him about the property in 2018, he lied, at first denying ever having held any stake in Fang RE. It's not my business, he told the paper. I never got paid. I never expected to get paid. When confronted with documents showing he had been an officer of the company, he reportedly changed his story to the paper, claiming Fang gifted him 20% equity in the building on his birthday, but he refused the offer, contrary to his claims in his August 2016 email to Fang. When contacted by DailyMail.com for comment, Pelosi Jr. said he had another incoming call and hung up. He has not responded to any written messages. The alleged bribery over Utah Street permits is one of several that prosecutors claim Santos arranged for Curran to push through permits for his clients at other properties. Curran and Santos deny wrongdoing. They are next due in court on February 4th. The recently fired building inspector is livid, claiming he knew nothing about Santos's alleged scheme or checks to charities and said he has acted professionally and ethically his whole 40-year career. So, of course, what we can see emerging on all these levels is not only the mountain of corruption that these politicians have engaged in for their entire life, but you can also see the stories of this corruption rising to the surface, and they are supported by the documentation. There is actually a factual trail that leads to the conclusion that these are indeed corrupt dealings. This is something that was lacked completely when they were trying to imply the same things about Donald Trump's dealings in real estate or with foreign countries. And I know at this point is when people have a reaction of frustration and ask why 
Nothing is ever done about this stuff. And to that, I respond, this is how this thing gets done. Okay. First, the media had to be broken. The addiction to the central narrative by society had to be broken. When we ask questions like, well, why doesn't anyone care? Why hasn't anyone cared to do this? The truth is most people haven't known. Not enough people have known to put the proper pressure on these politicians or on the news organizations to cover them. This stuff has to build from the bottom up completely outside the central narrative, completely outside the state media propaganda so that people can take it seriously and try to understand it rather than being led to false conclusions with all of the convoluted and complicated explanations about how what happened in reality wasn't really what happened. And people need to realize that there's a reason that all of this stuff is coming to the surface seemingly at the same time. And again, that's because we have overridden at this point the central narrative's power. That is why we are in the end game for the central narrative. And it's at that point that things can actually be accomplished because the public doesn't want to put up with this stuff any longer. And the more they know, the less tolerance they have for any of it. That is how you build a people's movement. It doesn't happen quickly. It doesn't happen in one day. None of this stuff would have emerged had we not been faced with this period we've experienced over the last year or so. And so I know it's awful and I know it's frustrating, but we are going to get to the end of this and none of us are going to just let this stuff drop. I mean, I'm not going to, I hope you're not going to. So as long as these stories continue to mount and build, there will be nowhere else that these corrupt politicians can simply sweep this stuff under the rug. That's the point of all of this. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform is great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. 
I'll see you next time out on the range. It's high noon! In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'mYourModerator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon, down on the range. It's hell!